Today's podcast is sponsored by the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, coming soon to Grand Rapids and Philadelphia. Listen for more at the end of the program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. You are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Carl Truman. And we are here to uh, continue to dip our toes into dangerous uh, waters and uh, taking the risk, because we are brave and courageous men, taking the risk at being canceled by an angry culture. And, And, you know, really, Carl, the only reason why I'm holding off on writing books right now so I'm just a little concerned as to how Amazon will treat me. Otherwise, I think I'd be just a flow of literary output at this point. Yeah, I, I think you could lose millions if you if you mistime this, Todd. You will lose millions of dollars. That's right. Uh, that's right. Definitely think that that book on baptism that you've been working on for what, the last 25 years is. Uh... Well, you know, I would burn so many bridges, um, and and given the fact that uh, um, I want my my Baptist brothers and sisters to flourish. I, I, I don't want to hurt them by, by releasing a, a defense of, of infant baptism, but who knows? Who knows? We'll see. Um, now, Carl, I want us to talk about two things that have just come up over the last couple of weeks that have garnered some attention. And I want to talk about them um, ultimately from the standpoint of, of what, what Christians who are um, mindful of, of remaining faithful in these days, what we can learn from these things and how we can be challenged to remain faithful. But the first issue I want to talk about uh, made quite a lot of news. Max Licato, of course, extremely well-known figure in evangelicalism for a lot of years. His very first book came out, I think, when I was a junior or a senior in high school. So we're talking like 1984 or something like that. And uh, he has remained since that time a, a, a fixture in evangelical life, selling lots and lots of books. I mean, Carl, your latest book is doing really well, but you ain't no Max Lucado, man. I Thankfully, mean. no. I, I give thanks every day that I'm not Max Lucado. If ever, uh, yeah, I, if ever I write a book like Max Lucado, Todd, drive from Virginia. Don't <laughs> greet anybody on the way. Don't say hello. Don't drive from Virginia no. and hit me over the head with a massive piece of two by four. I, I will do that. We will know that something. No is- offense to Max, by the way. No, 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 no. But if, if you come out with a book like Max, Max Lickett, we will know that something, something awful has happened to you. Maybe a book illustrated by some Thomas Kincaid paintings, that kind of thing. But <laughs> I, I, it, Max Lickett was pastor of a, of a, of a mega church in, uh, in San Antonio, uh, Texas. Um, as far as I know, there's never been any, any scandals with Max Lickett or anything like that. I'm sure he's a, a, a really decent fellow. Um, but very influential, primarily from his writing. Well, recently, the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., which is a part of the Episcopal uh, Church, not to be confused with the American Anglicans, the, the, the Episcopal Church, of which the, the, the National Cathedral is part of, 
uh, is a very liberal uh, denomination. Um, Max Licato is, a, is an evangelical, certainly not known as a guy who's going to charge the hill to lead a fight for conservative causes, but an evangelical. And uh, he recently preached uh, via video link, because of the days we're living in, to the National Cathedral. Now, that was met with some very angry uh, protests from uh, members of the Episcopal Church because of a 2004 sermon and accompanying article that Max preached at his church dealing with marriage, wherein he made it very clear uh, his stand on marriage, that it is uh, between a man and a woman only. Uh, he addressed homosexuality in that sermon, in that article, just stating what the church has always believed about homosexuality, that it is indeed a sin and that marriage is only between a man and a woman. Nothing that is controversial among you know the vast majority of evangelicals and certainly within the, 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 the history of the church. Well, that 2004 sermon and lecture were uncovered and there was uh, you know gnashing of teeth and all kinds of terrible things happening. To which then on February 11th, shortly after it all hit the fan, uh, Pastor Lakato uh, authored a letter, sent a, a letter, uh, which, which was an open letter, apologizing in, in very, very sad tones over the things that he had said um, in that sermon. In fact, he, he, he said this, this is part of the letter, and it reads this way, I now see that in that sermon, I was disrespectful. I was hurtful. I wounded people in ways that were devastating, all right? He goes on and he says, it grieves me that my words have hurt or been used to hurt the LGBTQ community. I apologize to you and I ask forgiveness in Christ. Now, to be fair, he does state that he personally still holds to what he says is the, the biblical uh, understanding, the historic traditional, that is, understanding of, of marriage, but he goes on and he says, quote, faithful people may disagree about what the Bible says about homosexuality, but we agree that God's holy word must never be used as a weapon to wound others. Now, there's a lot to say about that, um, but Carl, let me get your thoughts, first of all, on the fact that Max Licato responded to the criticism of what he had preached and written in 2004, a position which he says he still holds, by the way. But he issued this, this painful, agonizing apology after he, was, after, after he was criticized by these Episcopals associated with the National Cathedral. What do you think about the tone of his apology and the appropriateness of it? A number of things one could say. First of all, I think particular sins need to be confessed particularly. And the apology seems rather vague. It's just a general aesthetic statement about things I said hurt people. Okay, clarify exactly what you said that you now think was inappropriate. Uh, because the big question for me is, was it simply the fact that you told people that this way of living was wrong? Is that is that the thing that's hurtful? Or did you use bad language? Describe, you know, there are ways of, of, of calling out sin that you and I would agree are inappropriate and intentionally offensive, in which case those things should be apologized for. But you've got to be specific at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to imagine 
Max Lucado <laughs> saying something that was kind of hard-edged and offensive. Maybe it happened, but but B, let's be specific about it. As it stands, it looks far more like the kind of uh, jello-like uh, approach to things that one now gets in this this very therapeutic age in which we live. You know, there's that little voice in the back of my head says what what Lucado said that caused offence was he said that LGBTQ stuff is wrong. Right. And if if that's the limit of his offence, then I don't see that he can apologise for that and still say that he holds the biblical position, yeah. because it's not the the way he expressed himself. If you like, it's 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 the belief he holds right. that causes the offence at that point. And, and what's interesting is that the church, where he serves and has served for many many years now as pastor, has removed since then that 2004 sermon and accompanying article. They've removed it from their site. Yeah, and it, which. You know, maybe he did say something horrific in it. I just find well, that very, very hard to believe because had he done so, I think it would have been quoted and thrown back at him. Well, in the article that, that the Episcopal News Service released, I mean, apparently what he did was he did what Christianity has been saying for some 2,000 years plus now, which is homosexuality is akin to other sexual sins. And that he also made the egregious statement that a, 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 a homosexual temptation or orientation, if you like, uh, could be changed um, through pastoral care and, and, and ministry. And of course, you know, that's where uh, so much of the offense resides. So your instinct is correct. Max Licato didn't suddenly turn into Mark Driscoll at some moment in a sermon. Yeah, yeah. That, that's not been, nor has it ever been, his style. He just simply said what the church has always said. Yeah. And I mean, the other worrying thing about this is uh, you look up Max Lucado on Wikipedia, which of course is always 100% reliable, <laughs> but right. Wikipedia indicates that Max Lucado is a man of some considerable personal wealth. Yes. Now, that's not, now don't hear me as saying considerable personal wealth is in and of itself evil. But what considerable personal wealth does is it allows you to say stuff and get away with it <laughs> that ordinary people. Aren't. Max Lucado doesn't need to speak at the National Cathedral. Right. Max Lucado doesn't need to apologize to the LGBTQ community to preserve his health insurance or that right. of his wife. Max Lucado may not have the millions that J.K. Rowling has, but he's closer to her than he is to us in terms of <laughs> his livelihood is not hanging by a thread when he takes a stand. And I would say, if guys with the privilege of Max Lucado, the privilege of taking a stand that really costs them virtually nothing, mm -hmm. are not prepared to take that stand, A, what does that tell us about them? And B, what hope does it give to the public school teacher who could lose their job for taking a stand on this. Why should they sacrifice everything when the leadership class of evangelicalism is apparently willing to sacrifice nothing, even when that nothing would cost them nothing? Right. You know, in case in point, I, I, I serve in a, in a church where uh, men as elders and deacons in our church have taken solemn vows, knowing that that is public information that they are office bearers in a 
conservative Presbyterian church, which believes what the church has always believed about these issues. These men have taken public solemn vows. That information is publicly known. You can go on our church's website and and see who the office holders are. Each of these men um, have to make a living. They have families to care for. And each of these men, by taking these vows, particularly the men who have done so in the last five years, have done so knowing that taking those vows could run them out of their livelihood. Yeah, We even had conversations about that. And each of those men very consciously, soberly, and carefully took their vows knowing that all it would take is one poorly motivated person to, to dox them, to, to, to see them on the website of the church where they faithfully serve and, and put them at real risk. Um, and, and, and our church has been the target of, of vandalism in the past over this issue. And, and you're absolutely right. A pastor who's worth tens of millions of dollars could say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that some people were, are, are offended by the position I hold, but, but I'm a Christian. This is what the church has always confessed. And I haven't changed my mind on that. And it, and it wouldn't have put anything that he needs <laughs> at risk. Meanwhile, as you say, there's lots of Christians whose very livelihood is on the line right now. Yeah, and those people need the leadership class to step up and set an example. Yes. I mean, I, exactly. you and I have often said this, you know, there are people out there very brave on certain issues on Twitter who hold mm. jobs at very conservative seminaries. It isn't courageous to tweet stuff out when you have a job at a very conservative seminary. In actual fact, those kind of tweets can enhance your career and reputation. Uh, we need, I, I think, we need to realize that the leadership class has great privilege at this particular time, and it needs to be used wisely and appropriately. And, and sadly, I mean, who knows what Max Lucado's motivations were, but, you know, I think he's, we would say, in 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 Britain, he's muffed this up. He's made a mess of this, really. This was a chance for him to take a clear stand and a stand that cost him nothing, but which would have set an example, a real example to others. And yet uh, it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity missed and, and very, very sad. He, you know, for me, I, I've never read any Max Lucado, but whenever I think of him now, he'll, he won't be the guy who writes terrible Christian novels, bad, bad as that is. He'll now be the guy who crumbled the first puff of wind on the LGBTQ issue. Right. One of the things I tell my church when, when this issue comes up as we're applying sermons each week and, and the application has to do with being faithful publicly, you know, being faithful to the word, that sort of thing, is I remind them that, you know, faithfulness on these really controversial issues right now doesn't cost me as their pastor because they want me to be faithful. My job is not at risk in a conservative Presbyterian Church. In fact, I'm I'm thanked by people um, in my church for taking that stand. They are in a very different position, yeah, yeah. and the least I owe them is to be very clear, compassionate, but very clear and strong on um, my own stand on these issues because it's not going to cost me. At least in ways that, that that we're seeing right now. Now, now I want to I want to ask you also about this because. In his letter, he makes a statement, and I I want to parse this out a little bit, because he makes some very strong statements here. He says, quote, faithful people may disagree about what the Bible says about homosexuality. Now, Carl, this is interesting to me, and you being a historian, 
I know, have your antenna up when you hear a statement like that. Because in the history of Christianity, uh, the church in the West, the church in the East, um, the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Protestant Church, down through history have, have all agreed on, on a handful of basic issues. Uh, you know, those things that are enumerated, for instance, in the Apostles' Creed. You know, God is uh, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, uh, his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Uh, the church has always agreed on those things. And of course, we disagree on a lot of important things as well. But among the handful of things we agree upon, like the doctrine of the Trinity, is the biblical definition of marriage uh, being between one man and one woman. We also have always agreed um, uh, concerning uh, homosexuality. And, and so, so, no, faithful people don't disagree about what the Bible says about homosexuality, correct? I would say so. I mean, we say, well, the church certainly doesn't. Right. I mean, one can always have a, a well-meaning Christian within mm -hmm. the bounds of the church who doesn't understand or doesn't get or can't parse accurately some aspect mm -hmm. of the faith that the church publicly holds. Right. But I think what we'd say about that person is on that point, they actually stand outside the bounds of historic Christianity. So mm -hmm. the most charitable way of reframing his statement would be, you know, uh, Christians desiring to be faithful have sometimes mm -hmm. inadvertently placed themselves outside of the boundaries of historic yeah. Christian teaching. Yeah. You know, that's the best one can do with that statement. But but no, yeah. you're quite right. The, the church is pretty clear on this, uh, mm -hmm. or it was up until the day before yesterday. Right. Uh, uh, now the confusion has been injected really because of pressure coming from the culture and unfortunate transformations in notions of sexuality and personhood coming from the culture, not being driven by the dynamics of biblical orthodoxy or church life. This yeah. is the culture. This is worldliness intruding into the church. And of course, we might also be clear here that, you know, when we talk about the National Cathedral and the people objecting to Max Lucado, we're not even talking about the side B Christians here. Right. We're talking about full-blooded all the way LGBTQ uh, ideologues. That's what we're talking about. So, you know, we're not talking about, you know, Wes Hill is objecting to Max. You know, Wes Hill's not objecting to Max Lucado. We're talking yeah. about the real radicals, yeah. the real radicals here. So, and I don't think on that front one can spin it and say, well, you know, faithful Christians, you know, disagree over, over yeah. LGBTQ radicalism. No, I, I don't think even the most yeah. confused Christian disagrees over that one. Not one who's wanting to make anything that looks like a decent, coherent public profession of faith anyway. Right. Okay, so so here, here's a question that I know you hear. It's a question I hear, and it's this. Why are so many of us making such a big deal these days about homosexuality, about marriage, about gender? Why are we making such a big deal about this, you know, in these days? You know, aside from the fact that the culture is pressing the issue, that, that's one obvious answer to that question. But, but, but why don't we just say, well, look, uh, those issues of, of marriage and homosexuality, of, of gender, uh, those, those issues aren't raised in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. So, so why are we spending so much energy pushing back. How do you answer that? Well, I would say, first of all, the, the distinction between male and female is fundamental to the story of creation. You know, it's one of the basic building blocks of God's created reality. Secondly, when you move to the New Testament, uh, marriage 
is presented as an analogue of Christ and the church. So it has profound theological significance. I always remember being very struck by a comment my friend and former Aberdeen colleague, actually now at Notre Dame, uh, Francesca Murphy made in the run-up to uh, Obergefell v. Hodges, the Supreme Court judgment in the, in, in the matter of gay marriage. She was writing about gay marriage from a Catholic perspective, and she made the comment that gay marriage is blasphemy. Mm-hmm. And I was very struck by that. I thought, wow, you know, I, I thought it was wrong, but blasphemy, that's... Mm-hmm. And then I sat and I thought about, well, of course, for her, marriage is a sacrament. And the reason mm-hmm. marriage is a sacrament is it's an analogue of Christ and the church. Now, I would disagree with Catholic friends over the sacramental nature of marriage in, in right. terms of relationship to grace, et cetera, et cetera. But they're onto something there. Mm-hmm that marriage between a man and a woman is not just to be invented in any way or constructed in any way we wish. It has an archetype. It has an archetypal analog in the relationship of Christ and the church. So that would be a second answer. Third strand would be, you know, uh, uh, sex and how we think about sex is intimately connected to what we think human beings are and what their purpose is. And when you start uh, transforming sexual mores and sexual morality, what you're really doing is transforming what you understand human beings to be. And therefore, debates about sex are not really debates about prudes versus libertines. It's not about people who don't want you to have fun versus people who do. They're actually debates about what it means to be a human being. The idiom in which that's being thrashed out in our society at the moment is a sexual idiom, and therefore it's important for us to address these things. Yeah, indeed. And creeds and confessions are historically conditioned documents. Um, certainly, I would imagine uh, those who who began to uh, uh, first imagine the, the, the Apostles' Creed so long ago um, were not being confronted with transgenderism uh, as a pressing issue. There was no one within the church or within the sphere of, of, of Christianity that was saying, you know, we really need to, to be inclusive about homosexuality, or, or they might well have addressed it. Um, uh, certainly, uh, we are in a day where where we have to raise the, uh, the if, if you like, the confessional level of importance of these issues to people because they are deeply theological. And this is where our Roman Catholic neighbors have been so helpful for us. And Protestants are thankfully now beginning to do some catch-up work on, on understanding that when we're talking about marriage, we're not just talking about a social issue or an ethical issue. We are talking about something that's deeply theological for all the reasons that you, uh, that you outlined. This does have to do with creation with the telos of, of humanity and, and with God and his redemptive purposes. Yeah. That's why we're talking about these things. We also know that transgression in these areas is really bad for our neighbor, who we're called to love. And if we're going to be serious about throwing around phrases like, you know, I, w- I want to see my neighbor flourishing or I'm for the city, uh, then we have to address these issues, right? If I'm for yeah. the city and I ignore the city's favorite yeah. sins that are killing it physically and spiritually and emotionally, then I'm really not for the city, am I? 
<laughs> well, I'm always for Grove City, but it's my kind of city. <laughs> it's one street in the middle of nowhere. That's my kind of city, man. I'm I'm a, I'm an urban guy now. I'm involved in in city ministry, Grove City, <laughs> Western Pennsylvania. That's right. That's but right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And then it comes down to it is not the task of the church to affirm the world in its worldliness. Mm-hmm. It is the task of the church to model, if you like, an alternative community that walks the beat of a different drum and actually presents people with true human flourishing. Now, that's not an easy task, but it does mm-hmm. mean that we have to think about the culture around us, not as something that we should be appropriating in first order, but as something that we should be challenging by the way we live. And, and sadly, again, going back to Max Lucado, uh, uh, his apology, it's, it's, it's painful in many ways, but one of the most painful aspects of it, it it's, it's ultimately an affirmation of precisely that which he claims to stand against. Mm. And, you know, uh, he comes out of it, if you like, as a sort of a broken man. And that that he should be speaking truth to mm. comes away essentially affirmed, essentially justified in their own eyes. And that's, that's a tragedy. I, I think that the, the cult of likeness, niceness, the cult of wanting mm. to be liked, that's as lethal as anything in, in American culture, in American Christian culture. We have to realize that, uh, you know, to quote our friend, friend of the show, Rod Dreher, wrote that mm. article a few years ago, you know, let's keep Christianity weird. Um, <laughs> I have to say, it's a whole lot easier to keep it weird if you are Eastern Orthodox in Louisiana, I think, you know, that's, that's a kind of place where it's easy to be a weird Christian. Yeah. But what he's getting at there is, you know, let's not have the terms of Christianity set by the world around mm. us. Let's remember that our task is not to help people be worldly. Our task is to help people be distinct, to be strange. And it can be hard to be strange because right. people will mock you, ignore you, bully you, marginalize you but it's necessary. It's very, very necessary. Right. And, you know, as we get, as we get near wrapping up, I did just want to bring up this one other kind of related issue, because again, this is hitting the New York times, uh, Bethany Christian services, one of the nation's largest, if not the nation's largest Christian adoption agency, um, recently announced that it would begin serving LGBTQ families. Now, Bethany was in the news several years ago, when it was under fire for not adopting children to gay families. And they explained very clearly in that position, I think this was around 2008 or so. And they said, look, you know, we, we hold to the, to the biblical uh, definition of marriage. And so therefore, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now uh, a few years have passed and their tune has changed and they will now be, be serving LGBTQ families that is adopting children to families made up of various types of arrangements. And, and this, this was an interesting statement from a New York Times article on this. And I want to get your thoughts. Quote, Bethany's new approach is something of a tightrope act, an attempt to establish a clear, consistent policy of inclusion, you know, wonderful feel-good word, right? That does not rattle its core constituencies including the churches that are its primary venue for recruiting parents. The inclusivity resolution passed in January eliminated the 2007 position statement on marriage being between one man and one woman. 
but the new statement does not endorse same-sex relationships. So this is really interesting. Uh, uh, they, they acknowledge that they're walking a tightrope here uh, b- b- between wanting to be, quote, inclusive, because who doesn't want to be inclusive, and, and needing to not alienate the churches um, from which they get so many of their parents referred uh, to them. And while their statement in 2007 that marriage is between one man and one woman, that statement um, apparently has been eliminated from their publications. And now they just don't address it at all. And, and it seems to me a very strange and difficult position for an adoption agency, particularly one that is, quote, a, and this is the, the key, they are Bethany Christian services. And now they publicly are agnostic about what even marriage is. Actions always speak louder than words. If you want to know what somebody really believes, look at the way they act. Uh, and if they're staying silent now on the nature of marriage and acting as if marriage doesn't really matter at all, I think we can safely say then for them, marriage doesn't really matter at all, other than perhaps as a marketing pitch to maintain uh, market share, donations, whatever. Again, very sad that uh, this is a moment when, you know, it, it's possible that if, if the leadership class of the church stood firm on this one, we might be able to win something. Right. But as one by one, leaders and groups like this cave, mm-hmm. uh, you know, divided, we're falling. It's, it's crumbling all around us, man. And, uh, uh, and that's a tough place to be. Um, don't despair. The church will win at the end of the day. But it speaks to me of, well, of faith organizations that have, have lost the plot a long time ago. Uh, really just very, very sad. Right, exactly. And, and if it's not yeah. this tightrope, it's going to end up being another one. Yeah. So Bethany might think that they're safe walking this, you know, trying to navigate this particular tightrope. And sadly, that sort of thing only uh, uh, engenders a, a, an easier capitulation yeah. Yeah. than it's compromise. Well, we may have to return to Bethany Christian Services in a later program. I think there's a lot to discuss there, but we want to thank mm-hmm. you all for joining us today. Please visit our website, mortificationspin.org, and there you will find a chance to win a copy of Melvin Tinker's excellent book, This Hideous Strength, that outlines many of the cultural pathologies that underlie the kind of things we've been talking about today. While you're there, please feel free to make a donation to keep Mortification of Spin on air. And other than that, all that remains is for me to thank you for listening and say that we look forward to being with you next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Hey, Jerry, how you doing? Hey, Willie Nelson, long time no see. Hey, hey, Willie Nelson, long time no see. Hey, how you doing there? Pretty good. What's your name? Uh, Tommy. Tommy Flanagan. Yeah. So, what have you been up to? Well, I got a new movie coming out. No kidding. What's it called? It's called The Red-Headed Stranger. I play the part of a preacher. Oh, yeah, I heard about that on Church Chat. 
Oh, you watch our show? Religiously. <laughs> so what's new with you? Well, uh, I got a movie coming out too about myself. Yeah, it's called, uh, it's called uh, The Hook-Nosed and Balding Stranger. Yeah. Well, I suppose you play a preacher too, huh? No, I, uh, I play a rabbi. Yeah. In Ireland. Yeah, that's it. And I'm, a, I'm about to perform a bar mitzvah for the uh, McSchwartzes. Yeah. When they, when they move and I'm out of a job. Yeah. That's a, another one of those uh, Irish rabbi movies. Yeah. It'd be a great hit, I know that. Yeah, naturally. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is pleased to present Delighting in Our Triune God, the 2021 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Live and in person March 12th through the 14th in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and online from Philadelphia beginning April 30th. The Trinity is quintessential Christian doctrine, celebrating the biblical truth of one God in three persons, yet few believers today appreciate the doctrine's vital importance. Elevating the Trinity at this year's conference will be David Garner, Michael Barrett, Todd Rester, and Richard Phillips, with additional Philadelphia content from Robert Letham and others. Delighting in our triune God, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Registration for the Grand Rapids event is open now. Log on reformedevents.org for more. That's reformedevents.org.